I'm Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa Simone, And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the IRS's recent $29 billion assessment against Microsoft. In October 2023, Microsoft announced that the IRS had assessed the company $28.9 billion in back taxes, penalties, and interest. In today's episode, we discuss the issue behind the largest single IRS assessment in history, what Microsoft disclosed about the issue, and what might happen next. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. We are talking about another tax audit today. Ooh. And several episodes ago, we talked about Beyonce's tax audit. And today we're talking about Microsoft's tax audit. Um, those are two very different taxpayers. Yes. I'm going to call this um, a pretty big uh, partition, mm-hmm. if you will. Nice. To quote Queen Bee. Mm-hmm. With, I imagine, I'm just, I'm just guessing here, but I'm, I'm going to imagine these are very different tax issues that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and you would be correct. Okay. So if our listeners remember when the IRS audited Beyonce, they were mostly grumpy for, at her for not adequately supporting tax deductions for things like legal and professional fees. And they assessed her just under $3 million in taxes and penalties. Mm-hmm. Microsoft, on the other hand, is in hot water uh, for a business transaction that the IRS described as, quote, illusory in nature, serving no material economic purpose except to shift income, end quote. Them's fighting words. It's kind of like the IRS turned to Microsoft and said, or, or maybe they sang, that that transaction's all up in your mind. I, I really hope they did. I hope that's exactly what happened. Yep. That lack of a valid business purpose, um, that's going to get you in trouble with the IRS every single time. And since we're talking about being in trouble, what is the most trouble you personally have ever gotten into? I got pulled over by a plainclothes police officer one time and screamed out a lot on the side of the road. So that was pretty scary. I didn't actually do anything wrong, but that was pretty scary. I'm glad you brought up police because I have been, I'm not going to say arrested. Okay. I I, I don't actually know that that's true. I have been detained on not one, but two occasions. Explain yourself. For drinking. (laughs) my word. <laughs> okay. So the first one is, um, 100% my brother's fault. He, uh, I went as a date to, for one of his friends to prom yeah. and we went to a party afterward. And, you know, my mom very specifically was like, Hey Mark, make sure to look after your sister. What does he do? He bolts, uh, just in time for the police to show up and break up the party and detain everyone for the alcohol that was president. Wow. Yeah. And that was the first time that that happened I was gonna to me. Say. The second time was my high school graduation party, um, which apparently made like international headlines what? because it was held on the childhood home, uh, like plantation of, I want to say Thomas Jefferson, but I could be making that up. See, kids don't drink. Don't underage drink. Don't do it, kids. Just don't do it. Listen, listen, to, listen to Mama Storm. Don't drink. Sorry, not sorry. Anyway. The good news is neither of our bad acts put us on the hook uh, for- Potentially $29 billion to bring things back to Microsoft. No, I think I was getting screamed at on the side of the road by a cop for what maybe would have been like a $70 traffic ticket. So, all right. So we're going to try to to rehabilitate ourselves here and uh, do three things. Okay. Uh, First, we're going to talk about what Microsoft did to get the IRS so riled up. It did not involve drinking by as far as much as we can tell. And of course, when I said drinking, I meant milk. Absolutely. 
perfectly yes. legal things for an 18 year old. Uh, second, we're going to talk about how much warning Microsoft gave to its investors and, you know, just the general public uh, that this assessment was coming. Okay. And third, we're going to talk about what happens next. I like it. So uh, as we said, Microsoft is in trouble, not not for underage drinking, but for income shifting, which is something else in, in your bailiwick, brown eyes. Okay. Uh, so take it away. That's right. Yes. Trust in me. I got this. First thing to note is that we have to get in our Wayback Machine for this episode because the assessment relates to tax returns that Microsoft filed over a decade ago. We're also in our Wayback Machine because the whole thing started with CDs. Uh, what's a CD, you Gen Xer? Exactly. Back in the day, Microsoft sold its Windows and Office software on these physical, like, record-looking things. They were shiny. Compact, they were called compact discs, or CDs for short. And it used a small facility in Puerto Rico with about 85 employees to burn the software onto the CDs. That is the correct lingo. Yep. Microsoft originally located the facility in Puerto Rico in response to a tax break that saved them about $200 million over several years. Thing is, that tax break was set to expire in 2005. It's all over. It's all over. So Microsoft considered closing the facility and outsourcing the CD production to save money, or as Queen Bee said, time to come home. Mm, good one. But KPMG, which is a big four accounting and tax firm, suggested that Microsoft actually keep the facility in Puerto Rico and use it to save even more taxes. That's right. They said, hold up. The deal KPMG proposed called for the Puerto Rican facility to produce all CDs for Microsoft's American market. To do so, the Puerto Rican subsidiary would have to own the exclusive licensing rights to Microsoft's technology, which meant buying the IP from Microsoft US, who of course originally developed all the Windows software that was being burned onto the CDs in Puerto Rico. And to be clear, we haven't gotten to anything illegal yet. You are 100% allowed to sell a license from one entity to another. Just like you're 100% allowed to go to a high school party after prom. And drink graduation. milk. And drink milk. And drink, yes. Okay. Um, so yes, one entity selling licensing rights or any other intellectual property to a related entity, totally fine. Mm -hmm. The challenge is that the price you charge for that sale has to be what we call arm's length. Mm -hmm. So Microsoft should have sold the intellectual property to its Puerto Rican affiliate for the same price it would have sold it to an unrelated party. And that is where things get difficult here because there's really no readily observable comparable price for an exclusive yes. license to Microsoft's unique technology. Yeah. No such thing had ever been sold before. No. So Microsoft, with the help of economists from KPMG, had to estimate a price based on various projections and assumptions, and the price they came up with was about $16 billion. So it's hard to assess how reasonable that price is in a vacuum. It is. So let, let's try to put some context around this. This deal happened in around 2005. Okay. And for reference, Microsoft's market cap at that time was about $270 billion. And the company was consistently reporting about $40 billion of revenue every single year. Year. Okay. So after all is said and done, one could argue that selling the exclusive rights to the company's technology for $16 billion was um, a bargain. And that is precisely what the IRS is arguing. What's more, once the Puerto Rican sub owned the technology, it had the right to charge Microsoft US a fee for selling products into the American market that exploited that technology. And so by some estimates, Microsoft US made almost $68 billion of transfer payments to the Puerto Rican affiliate for use of the technology from 2006 through 2015. So why did Microsoft do all of this? 
Well, remember, we're in our Wayback Machine. And over this period of time, the U.S. tax rate was 35%. Mm-hmm. Now, Microsoft and KPMG worked with the Puerto Rican government to negotiate a tax rate that was as low as uh, 0% on profits reported there for a period of 15 years. That's um, that's low. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's actually what we refer to, friends, as a tax holiday, as in happy mm. holidays. You don't owe taxes for the next 15 years. Well, in fairness, oftentimes on holidays, we exchange gifts, and that's what happened here. Microsoft got a present of 0% tax from the Puerto Rican government in exchange for, wait for it, okay. a promise to hire an additional 46 employees. So amazing. Yeah. Uh, doesn't sound like a great gift, but the Puerto Rican government had every right to refuse to give them that low tax rate. So I guess they were satisfied with 46 extra employees. It would seem so. Now, every time Microsoft sold a Windows CD in the U.S., let's say for $500, it owed some portion of that sales price to the Puerto Rican subsidiary in exchange for using that technology, which was now owned by Puerto Rico. So every dollar of fee paid from the U.S. to Puerto Rico saves Microsoft 35 cents in tax because it got away from the 35% tax rate and into a 0% tax rate. Yep. And they plan to wash, rinse, repeat until the end of time. I got that. Okay, so to recap, Microsoft US sold its tech to a related affiliate in Puerto Rico for $16 billion at a time when the company was worth a lot more than that. Yes. The PR entity also paid another $16 billion to the US parent for R&D. Yes. In exchange, the US parent paid almost $70 billion to the Puerto Rican sub in technology transfer payments, for about $38 billion of net income shifted out of the U.S. at a 35% rate to Puerto Rico at a 0% rate. Did I get that? Sounds right to me. Yeah, I don't think they're just going to be able to work it out on this one. That $33 billion difference is what I would call irreplaceable. Mm. It's uh, probably the best thing they never had. Nice. We talked about what Microsoft did to get into trouble with the IRS. Now let's move on to our second goal for today, which is to talk about how much warning Microsoft investors had that this kind of an assessment was coming. Now, this is all accounting for income taxes and there's nothing out there for me here. So (laughs) you want to kick that off? Um, Well, it's about accounting for income taxes. So of course I do. All right. So we have to pay attention to the timing here. Uh, The tax returns in question are for 2004 through 2013. Now, even though firms have been doing this kind of tax planning for decades, the Financial Accounting Standards Board that oversees public companies' financial statements didn't start requiring disclosure about this, quote, uncertain tax planning till around 2007. Yes. Okay. I know this one. In 2007, the Financial Accounting Standards Board created a new rule, which old timers like us refer to as FIN48 for financial interpretation number. You got it. Okay, excellent. So far, so good. The rule intended to increase the comparability in how firms accounted for these uncertain tax positions, and it mandated a minimum level of disclosure to investors about these positions. Okay, so what is an uncertain tax position? Yeah, that's a good question. It is a good question. So companies can claim many types of tax position, and that's something that is going to lower their income tax bill. Uh, They can take accelerated depreciation. They can claim an income tax credit. They can decide just to not file a tax return at all. Some of those positions are certain. That means that the IRS or whoever the relevant tax authority is, is absolutely going to agree what the company is doing. So no questions asked. Okay. 
Other types of tax positions are uncertain. There could be disagreement between the company and the tax authority as to whether the company qualifies for the benefit they're claiming on their return. And if so, how much of a benefit they qualify for. Yeah, and this type of transfer pricing that Microsoft did seems pretty clear that it's an uncertain tax position. Clearly an uncertain tax position. I mean, it's true. Microsoft absolutely had the right to sell its IP to its Puerto Rico affiliate. And the Puerto Rican affiliate subsequently had the right to charge Microsoft US a fee for using that IP. That's not what we're disputing here. No, Microsoft could not be certain that the IRS would agree with the pricing of those transactions. Absolutely. And so starting in 2007, companies uh, sometimes don't get to recognize the full benefit of these uncertain tax positions in their financial statements. And on top of that, they have to make disclosures about the amount of those benefits they have not yet recognized. I think we should do an example. We should. So we're going to keep it super simple and assume that a company claimed a $1 million federal tax benefit related to transfer pricing. Okay. Uh, The company is not certain and cannot be certain that the IRS is going to agree that they are entitled to that entire $1 million tax benefit. Fair. So the IRS could easily argue with them that the transfer price should have been different such that more income was taxable in the U.S. and the benefit would be reduced. The company is going to apply the rules of this FIN48 interpretation and decide that the most likely outcome is that the IRS would allow them to keep only $800,000 of that tax benefit if they were audited and if the IRS had full knowledge of all the relevant facts and circumstances. Yeah, fat chance of that happening. Indeed, but the Financial Accounting Standards Board didn't care to play in reality with this one. Uh, So what does that mean? The company would have claimed a million dollars of tax benefits on their tax return. They would have actually saved a million dollars of tax. Mm -hmm. But FIN48 steps in and says, "Eh, we're only going to let you recognize $800,000 of those benefits in the financial statements. That additional $200,000 you have to disclose as a liability to reflect an estimate of any additional taxes that you might owe if the IRS came in and audited you, yada, yada, yada. Perfect. Yes. And those unrecognized tax benefits make the company's tax expense on their financial statements and their effective tax rate, which is tax expense divided by pre-tax income from the financial statements, it makes those things higher than they otherwise would be if they didn't have to put up that liability for a portion that may or may not be actually recognized over time. Exactly. So question for you, Mm -hmm. what was Microsoft saying about these uncertain tax positions back in 2004? Did I lose you? No, but you asked what Microsoft was saying in 2004 and they weren't saying anything. Uh, okay, well, well, I didn't literally mean what that were they saying about uncertain tax positions because you know those disclosures weren't required until 2007. So let me back up, ask it again. What were they saying generally about the risk associated with this position? I'm getting a blank face. Cute, because nothing gets our listeners engaged like dead air be. I mean- Sometimes that's a strategy, right? You got to talk low. Talk low to draw them in. No? Not on a podcast. Okay, sorry. Um, So in 2004, Microsoft reported an effective tax rate of 33% in their financial statements. And that was not that far off from the federal rate of 35% at the time. So looking at their effective tax rate, it didn't look like they were doing anything crazy. Okay. They also noted that the IRS was auditing their tax returns from 1997 through 2003 and that they believed any adjustments would, quote, not be material. So they were not sounding the alarm bells back in 2004. Okay, so now let's fast forward to to 2007. Maybe this is a more fair question to ask because that's when these disclosures were required. Yeah. So Microsoft should have have been first disclosing a FIN48 
liability in 2007, they disclosed about $3.2 billion in unrecognized tax benefits and noted that the IRS was auditing their tax returns for 2004 to 2006, which is fairly common. So nothing too crazy here. No. That general level of disclosure continued for the next several years. Yeah. And we just kind of get this piecemeal disclosure for, you know, from 2007 until uh, voila, it's June 30th of 2023. Okay. And Microsoft has now 17 billion of these unrecognized tax benefits in their financial statements. So they started at 3.2 billion. Now they're up to 17 billion. Okay. That's a, that's a jump. That's a jump. And they say, hey, we don't expect a final resolution of any IRS audits in the next 12 months. And we don't think that this liability is going to change a lot in the next 12 months. That's what they're saying. Okay. At 17 billion, June 30th, 2023. Yes. So just to be really precise here, those financial statements where they said, hey, we don't think anything is going to change in the next 12 months and we're not expecting a big liability change. Mm -hmm. Those financial statements were filed on July 27th, 2023. Okay. On October 11th, 2023, just 11 weeks later, Microsoft announces a $29 billion assessment. So what gives? Are they just beautiful liars? Mm, excellent reference. Um, hard to say. First, they may honestly not have expected the IRS to make its assessment so quickly because Fair. the IRS isn't exactly known for, you know, moving and shaking. No. Yeah. We know that this issue has been contentious. So maybe there was a breakdown in communication and the IRS surprised them with this assessment. That's a possibility. Yep. When the company says they don't expect the liability to change significantly in the next 12 months, I believe them because they're going to appeal. Yes. And that is going to take longer than 12 months in all likelihood. And that wraps up our third goal for today of discussing what happens next. Microsoft plans to appeal. Uh, that was quick. Yep. End of, end of episode. We're done here. <laughs> Cue music. Um, okay. So I... Love all of the things you're saying. Technically speaking, the liability might not change because they're going to appeal, blah, blah, blah. Um, but what about the amount of the reserve? They've got a $17 billion reserve, which is them trying to say to investors, we might owe the IRS $17 billion for all the bad stuff we've done. Mm -hmm. But the assessment is almost $30 billion. So are they just, are they lying? Are they underestimating? What, what, where's the other $13 billion? Yeah, it's unclear. I mean, Microsoft says they're going to appeal. And according to reporting by ProPublica, the IRS appeals office is known as, quote, the gift shop. Ooh, okay. Yeah, because sometimes it settles transfer pricing audits for as little as 20% of the additional tax assessed by the exam team. Ah. So that would mean if we apply that 20%, that would mean Microsoft could walk away owing only about $6 billion, which is more than covered by that $17 billion Fin48 reserve that they have disclosed. Uh, uh, America has a, has a, has a problem here. Yeah. Once again, it's time for the good, the bad, and the ugly, our favorite segment of this show. B, how about you kick us off? Oh, yes. I'm getting cute silence once again. Sorry. All that I'm looking for here is one good, nice thing you can say about this. And it can't be all the Bay song titles we worked into this episode. Uh, it cannot. Um, 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 uh, uh, yeah. Uh, you and I have never owed anybody $29 billion. That's a good thing. It's because we don't have $29 billion They're to irrelevant. owe. Irrelevant. Erroneous. Sure. 
that's what I have to say is good. I would have thought you would have led with you got the opportunity to talk about accounting for income taxes, which is your favorite thing ever. Oh my gosh. And do you know what, ladies and gentlemen, and our non-binary friends as well, the first paper that Lisa and I ever wrote together was about FIN 48. It was. It was. It was a magical time. Yeah. So this is, okay, that's good. That's good. Excellent. Uh, on to the bat. Oh, wait. Okay. Hold on. Sorry. Sometimes when you give me a minute, something trickles in. Is this uh, possibly evidence that the IRS is doing its job? They are holding a publicly traded company. They're holding their feet to the fire, holding them accountable for a big transfer pricing transaction. When that's Those are very difficult to audit. We explained they're difficult to price. Yeah. They're difficult to price by the IRS too. So to be determined, but sure. They're trying. They're making, a, they're making an effort. They're trying. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now to the bad. Okay. Um, is the IRS really doing <laughs> no? You its can't. Job? You can't do that. <laughs> what do you, well, so what's interesting here is that they brought in an outside legal firm to help with this yeah, audit. Yeah. They're outsourcing it. Yeah. They hired in 2014 a company called Quinn Emanuel and signed a 2.2 million dollar contract for the firm's top partners to spend time on the case. So uh, I'm not saying outsourcing is bad. Um, it's just that like without this help, you got to kind of wonder like, would the IRS be able to do its job? Yeah, it's, it is not, it is not great. And I think it does call into question, you know, and I don't even think the IRS would mind us saying this because it's kind of evidence that like they don't have the resources that they need to get it done themselves. And so they got to spend $2.2 million on one particular case on one particular issue to go get the people who can help them get it done. The other thing I'll just say here, and and I talked about this with my students and they were all like, um, but Professor Stomberg, you told us that the statute of limitation was three years. Mm. Why are we talking about tax returns from 20 years ago? And I'm like, yeah, why are we talking about tax returns from 20 years ago? Because it takes a long time. It does, too long. As soon as, as soon as they open the audit for a year, yep. they get to keep it open and the statute isn't relevant anymore. So yeah, that's the fun little trick that the IRS plays to, to get over the statute of limitations. Absolutely. Technically speaking, it's the statute of limitations for the IRS to assess a deficiency, not to close it out. Right. Um, but this does make me wonder if maybe we need some guidelines or legislation that says you only have so long to do it because I mean, 20 years, people, 20 years, you could have a kid who went to college. It is a long time. It also, I, I think we're moving into the ugly here, but, um, it makes me frustrated with the legal process. I know you wanted to be a lawyer at one point in time, um, but I never have wanted to sort through over a million pages of documentation, which is what Microsoft handed over to the IRS in this case. That sounds tedious as hell. Yeah, and I mean, let's be clear, uh, you're 100% right. According to some reporting by ProPublica, the Microsoft attorneys gave the IRS over 1 million pages of documentation. And by all accounts, much of it was irrelevant. So it, it, it becomes a game. It becomes just a game of yeah. burying each other in paperwork. We're not talking about the facts. We're not talking about what's relevant. We're really just trying to bog the other one down until they call uncle and quit. Um, another thing that's ugly here that I think you and I learned about for the first time researching this episode was that it used to be that the IRS could stop the clock, sort of like make time stand still with the statute of limitations and whatnot by issuing what was called a designated summons. And they needed the approval of a federal judge to do that. And also the IRS had the power to block Microsoft from even going 
to the Office of Appeals. So what we talked about here is like, it's kind of frustrating because the Office of Appeals is independent from the exam team. Mm -hmm. So you have these exam agents who've worked for 20 years to Mm. support this assessment of $30 billion. And yeah, it could be kind of frustrating to know that Microsoft is just gonna walk into the gift shop and pay 6 billion and and be done with it. And so it used to be the case that the IRS could block a taxpayer's access to the Office of Appeals. Mm. Well, Microsoft didn't like either of those things. Yeah. And so what they've been doing during this 20 year window is they lobbied really hard in support of a bill that was eventually passed. It's called the Taxpayer First Act. So, you know, it just sounds great. Like who doesn't want to put taxpayers first? But what it does among other things is it implements a new process that the IRS has to follow to be able to block a company from going to appeals or to designate a summons. It also prevents an IRS contractor like this law firm that we talked about from directly questioning taxpayers under oath. And so you kind of have to ask yourself, how much of this is actually taxpayers first versus just hamstringing the IRS in these big technical cases where they kind of have to use different techniques to get an advantage over these high powered corporate attorneys? Yeah. I mean, because the IRS needs so much more hamstringing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, it's enough to break your soul. You know, all I could do was cry. Well, that's all we have time for today. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses. 